What's up, everyone, and welcome to the weekly edition of ESG Now, where we cover how the environment, our society, and corporate governance affects and are affected by our economy. I'm your host, Mike DiCibato, and this week we have two stories for you. First, we are going to discuss abortion pills and the companies that make them. Then we discuss what sovereign bonds can tell us about climate risks. Thanks, as always, for joining us. Stay tuned. There was a leaked draft of a Supreme Court opinion this week that showed the possible reversal of the landmark abortion law in the U.S. called Roe v. Wade. Roe v. Wade was a decision by the U.S. Supreme Court in which the court ruled that the Constitution of the United States protects a pregnant woman's liberty to choose to have an abortion without excessive government restrictions. Its removal would mean states would be able to decide on the legality of abortion, which would likely translate into a map of legality that would follow political divides. What it has also meant is there is now a spotlight on other forms of non-surgical abortion options, such as prescription pills that can be used to terminate a pregnancy and the companies that make them. These drugs are called abortifacients, and they're made by about 44 companies in our coverage universe, and they go by the names like methotrexate, misoprotozole, and Servigem. And fun fact about these pills is they aren't just used for abortions. Some are also cancer treatments or they treat rheumatoid arthritis, which is fascinating. And I found out while talking to my guest and colleague for this episode, Namita Niar. Now, the reason we have detailed data on which companies make abortifacients is because some investors want to screen these companies out of their portfolios. Traditionally, religious endowments, for example, wanted to screen these companies out of their portfolios. And I thought we should start this episode off by giving a quick background on these drugs and what it means for these companies that make these drugs to be in the middle of this political maelstrom. So here's my conversation with Namita. Most companies uh, that market these abortion pills or abortion drugs, are uh, they give a combination of two medicines mifepristone and misoprostol and uh, these are used for terminating a pregnancy it's usually it usually happens in the earlier the earlier weeks of the pregnancy so uh, and these are the drugs that are usually marketed as abortifacients and um, there are a number of side effects for these drugs and uh, as a result these are always prescribed uh, by a medical professional and they're usually administered um, uh, in the presence of uh, or under the care of a healthcare professional. Well, these and these drugs aren't being made just by niche drug companies, right? There's Pfizer. Everyone knows Pfizer by now. There's Sanofi, which is this massive French pharmaceutical company that I probably just pronounced wrong. Sanofi. There's also Novartis, which is another massive pharmaceutical company with a market cap about the size of Coca-Cola. So are these giant companies now in the politically difficult situation if Roe versus Wade is actually overturned and more attention is now put toward those drugs? There's already been reports of people hoarding them. Are, are these companies now having to deal with that, you think? Okay, so the the nuanced version of this answer would be that uh, these drugs are not just abortion drugs. 
drugs like methotrexate are actually anti-cancer drugs. They're used for chemotherapy. Even mifepristone uh, and misoprostol, they might be used, you know, like after the pregnancy to prevent, uh, after childbirth to prevent uh, bleeding, excessive bleeding from the uterus. So uh, while these drugs are available in the market, the dosage determines whether they're being used as abortifacients or they're being used for other indications. So it would not be that the company can actually stop uh you know making these drugs if there is a ban because there are other potentially life-saving indications for all of these drugs so does that mean that they're not under political pressure to comment on roe versus wade or comment on the drugs that they make do you think they're under any pressure at all due to the possible overturn of this landmark law in the u.s about abortions uh, again, that would be a very, uh, a very tricky stance for a company to take, given that uh, these drugs do not uh, account for more than one percent of the total revenues that a company makes in a year on average, in most cases being less than half a percent. And um, to take a political stance in this matter uh, might not uh, might not be in the company's interest because it's not just for one indication and it's not just an abortion drug. There are many other indications for which these drugs have been approved. So it wouldn't be that the company's significant revenues are being, uh, you know, shut down by because of the political you know climate around these drugs and um, and taking a, and and usually companies uh, they tend to lobby around things like uh, the market for a drug uh, drug prices and um, the sort of reimbursements that they have to get from medicare and medicaid Keeping with state disclosures, let's move to sovereign bonds and how they are unique in showing how the risks of climate change may manifest for our governments and our economies. Sovereign bonds are issued by a government treasury to finance government programs, to pay down old debt, to pay interest on current debt, and any other government spending needs. And like a company, the interest rate that an investor gets when they purchase a sovereign bond is dependent on the health of that country's economy, showing how a country's debt, its GDP, and its possible inflation may impact its ability to pay back its bondholders in the future. This is what sovereign bonds and bonds in general can tell you. For example, the 10-year German sovereign bonds are some of the most secure and have the lowest interest rate payments at under 1%, while Argentina, which is unfortunately dealing with a host of economic issues, has the highest at almost 50%. Sovereign bonds can be a bellwether of a government's health, and anyone that owns fixed income, let's say in your 401k for example, owns a ton of sovereign bonds because of their safety. Most governments, aside from the very troubled, don't just fail to pay back their debt holders. But can climate change disrupt that norm? Specifically, can physical climate risks and transition risks, the latter of which is the movement toward a low-carbon economy, affect a government as seen through the lens of their bonds? To answer that, I called up my colleague Bavir Shah, who helps run our sovereign climate risk models. And I asked him first, what did sovereign bondholders see as the bigger current risk, physical risks or transition risks? 
Yeah, so for sovereign debt holders, physical risk is actually the more intuitive um, concept to think about. Um, it's a pretty one-directional um, risk for a country um, in the sense that, let's say, having natural disasters or um, regions that are just no longer um, economical um, becomes a greater risk on a country servicing back um, its debt. Um, so it's usually a fairly straightforward um, issue where it's um, bad for most sovereign bonds um, and um, most sovereign debt holders don't course like the idea of physical risk on their portfolios but the trouble is that unlike in equities um, bonds have varying maturities so let's say um, a 10-year um, sovereign bond um, is being held and the physical risk might not actually directly apply to that bond over its lifetime um, so some investors do um, question the case of how relevant physical risk is going to be on let's say a bond maturity for a sovereign um, bond that expires before that risk um, takes place. Um, it still matters, but it's more a risk that, let's say, materializes when that bond rolls over rather than perhaps of the lifetime of that duration. So basically, it's when a possible natural disaster could come and completely impede government's ability to run itself. By the way, Bevere mentioned duration there. Its duration is a measure of interest rate risk. It's the years it will take the lender of cash to receive that same amount of cash back in interest rates. And if a country's interest rate changes due to, say, a natural disaster, then a bond with a long duration is going to go down in value, especially if that natural disaster happens during that bond's tenure. Those risks are a bit easier for us to model, though, is what Bevere is saying. The scenarios are disturbing, of course, but more understandable for bondholders. What is more esoteric is transition risks. There are transition risks for individual companies that we've talked about often. For example, if an oil and gas company doesn't transition away from fossil fuels, they may be left with massive regulatory burdens when governments enact regulation to curb carbon emissions. But then there are transition risks for countries. So when you have transition risks for a company, um, there is, um, in theory, a government that applies a tax or um, tighter regulation onto companies, and that then translates into higher costs. But when you think about it for a country, there isn't really um, another policymaker that's going to apply that same level of regulation upon a country. So transition risk for countries is a little bit different, and it's all about the cost or the benefit of that low-carbon economy, the pain, the investment, the dead industries, and new industries that come with that transition. So for sovereign debt holders, the way they think about trans the transition risk is, is about two things, really. First is the amount of debt that um, is added onto a country's plate in order to transition. And essentially, there's very few answers um, on that or, or any quantification on how sovereign debt holders should be thinking about that. The only silver lining seems to be that some of what um, governments, let's say, invest domestically could be recollected back as, uh, as, let's say, tax revenues. But the second question that um, some debt holders focus on when thinking about transition risk is what happens to GDP? So is there a negative effect, a positive effect? Um, when does that happen? And um, now we do have some tools to actually look at this. So... Um, the central banks um, use specialist climate macroeconomic models um, that use scenarios to think about how um, countries behave in different um, scenarios. Um, and the conclusion seems to be that GDP um, actually appear, uh, appears relatively modest um, in, in its sort of downside risk when countries start to decarbonize early. But those costs tend to shoot up quite quickly um, the longer that decarbonization is delayed um, because renewables don't just come online overnight um, and playing catch up is quite costly. 
Um, but essentially, the quantitative modeling is telling us, um, at least so far, that sovereign debt holders should not just worry about the costs of, let's say, adding on to a government's um, debt pile, but also worry about countries which are delaying carbonization because that will raise the costs even further. So GDP isn't really a cause for concern for investors when a government begins to transition to a low carbon economy. But the debts that countries incur due to borrowing for building new energy systems based on renewable energy, for example, will have to be paid attention to. That is especially true if a government waits to transition its economy, if it engages in what is technically called a delayed transition scenario, which says that global annual emissions won't decrease until 2030. And then when that happens, we really need to put the hurt on ourselves to limit warming to below 2 degrees Celsius to avoid catastrophic climate change. So here's where it gets a bit wonky, because on the one hand, it seems pretty obvious. We should just transition right away, no questions asked. But on the other hand, what our sovereign bond climate risk models seem to show us is that if we transition our economy haphazardly, we could get higher inflation, which I know, I know we have all heard enough about inflation, but just remember that everyone hates inflation because A, it can raise the prices of the most visible parts of our economy, food, gas, and electricity, for example, and B, it can be hard to pinpoint where it's coming from, so it can be used as either a political football or just a general stressor. But Veer is going to explain a bit more here, but in this sense, bondholders are like everyone else. When inflation occurs, they see red. So where it gets more complicated is that decolonization is not cost-free for an economy in that it actually generates inflation. So it's almost paradoxical that what um, also hurts sovereign and bondholders is um, that pathway of, let's say, higher investment, um, a higher change in the economy leading to, let's say, higher inflation and then higher interest rates. A bit like what we're seeing right now, um, where it just makes sovereign bonds less attractive to investors. So for sovereign bondholders, there really is a trade-off between um, wanting to, let's say, hold countries that are decarbonizing early because um, the cost to, let's say, GDP of that transition are lower um, compared to holding the same countries when they start that transition later versus also experiencing um, inflation almost immediately once that economy starts to decarbonize, um, which tends to be quite negative for sovereign bonds. So the speed spot is really finding economies that are decarbonizing early without generating too much inflation in the process. A correct thought in hearing this would be, well, the meltdown of our ecosystem is more important than worrying about inflation. But another correct thought is thinking about what higher inflation can mean for lower income individuals or for the general ability of a government to stay in power and continue on a path of decarbonization. It reinforces the importance of clear communication and orderly transition by a government for trying to move away from high-emitting systems. And there are some governments that are failing to do that. Take Australia, for example. According to our data, Australia has some of the highest sovereign warming potentials of anyone out there, meaning they aren't really doing much to lower their carbon footprint. They are right up there with Kuwait and Qatar. And in 2021, there was an assessment of 60 countries released at the Global Climate Summit in Glasgow And Australia's government was ranked last in its policy response. Remember, Australia is a major coal exporter, so that shouldn't surprise you. They're not really doing much, and they don't have policies to do anything in the future so far. 
Most exposed country, worst management of that exposure, means that there might be trouble brewing for their sovereign bonds and their state in general. It also means that they might be heading for political unrest when they realize that not doing anything is not a viable option and they try to react and they have to react too quickly and they get a situation like what we saw in France with the Yellow Vest protests. So, so I guess some of the messages which are coming out from all, all of this um, macroeconomic modeling of climate change um, are that decolonization is not free um, and that there, there is no free lunch. Uh, and that's a really simple concept and we all know it at the back of our heads, but it really hits home um, when you have that message that, say, inflation could be or greenflation could be um, this kind of theme that, that does start to intensify more and more um, as we go deeper into this decolonization journey. And as we've sort of seen um, recently, you know, some of those themes um, uh, in, in some countries, let's say in France, um, have made mixed reactions in, in the public. Um, what we've seen is that inflation um, trends, which are linked to, let's say, energy prices, um, are having mixed reactions in the public and in turn having even political consequences. And that is a cycle. Um, and the, the extent to which, let's say, public support is going to remain for um, decolonization um, kind of depends on how well policymakers, not just monetary policymakers, but governments as a whole, um, manage that inflation. Um, there have been some speeches by, let's say, um, ECB policymakers recently even trying to differentiate up um, these types of inflation, whether it's an inflation caused by um, by higher energy prices or just an uh, inflation resulting, let's say, from decarbonization. Right. Having to explain inflation away can impede a government's ability to get stuff done. It can make people rightly question whether this or that action is actually working in their benefit. Which is what is so interesting about looking at how economic models intertwine with various climate risks. They can point to asset movements, yes, and are thus an important tool for investment. But they can also be a signal for how a citizenry might react to capital allocation decisions made by their governments. And that's it for the week. I wanted to thank Namita and Bavir for talking to me about the news with an ESG twist. I wanted to thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate it. If you like what you heard, don't forget to rate and review us. It pushes up higher up on those podcast lists and more people can listen to us. And if you want to get me every week, get Bentley every week in your podcast medium, don't forget to subscribe and that can be your future and present and past. Thanks again and talk to you next week. The MSCI ESG Research Podcast is provided by MSCI Inc. subsidiary, MSCI ESG Research, LLC, a registered investment advisor, and the Investment Advisors Act of 1940. And this recording and data mentioned herein has not been submitted to, nor received approval from the United States Securities and Exchange Commission or any other regulatory body. The analysis discussed should not be taken as an indication or guarantee of any future performance, analysis, forecast, or prediction. The information contained in this recording is not for reproduction in whole or in part without prior written permission from MSCI ESG Research. None of the discussion or analysis put forth in this recording constitutes an offer to buy or sell or promotional recommendation of any security, financial instrument or product or trading strategy.
Further, none of the information is intended to constitute investment advice or recommendation to make or refrain from making any kind of investment decision and may not be relied on as such. The information provided here is as is, and the user of the information assumes the entire risk of any use it may make or permit to be made of the information. Thank you.